is the AJPH podcast. The upbeat blues in the intro features two dialoguing guitars and this issue is about dialoguing but in public health. Dialoguing between people having as different worldviews as Republicans and Democrats. I am interviewing people who wrote in the April issue of AJPH to go behind the scene of their papers. My objective here is not to describe how opinions may diverge, because we are exposed to a deluge of daily news about this, but to show how opinions in public health may sometimes converge, because the public, and I include myself in this public, doesn't always have the opportunity to listen to opinions from both sides simultaneously. Hopefully, you will be surprised. I will start by interviewing Dr. Georges Benjamin. He's the executive director of the American Public Health Association about his great concerns about how public health is managed under the current administration. Then I will ask Dr. David Sunwell, a Republican from Utah, how much difference for public health does it make when the federal administration is red or blue. Then, with Democratic State Assembly member Dick Gottfried and former Executive Director of the National Republican Congressional Committee Pete Kirkham, we will review the chances that New York State experiments with a single-payer plan in the near future. Then, with Dick Zimmer, a former Republican congressman from New Jersey, we will discuss about the direction that the EPA is taking now. Finally, I've asked each of my interviewees if there was a bipartisan public health initiative that could have some chances of success in the coming weeks, and I have grouped their responses. I am Alfredo Morabia, the editor-in-chief of the journal, and this is March 4, 2018. I am reaching out to George's Benjamin now. You know, George's, I know you as an extremely balanced person. You can think very calmly about the most outrageous things that are going on. You never lose your smile, your beautiful sunny smile that can enlighten the room of a plenary session of a PHA when there are thousands of people there. But these days... You were different. You know, I feel you are angry, very deeply angry. Am I right? I am determined. You know, like many of us, um, I was concerned about the direction of our country and and continue to be so. And, you know, I I felt that we might, particularly after the election, we're going to go in the wrong direction. Um, and so, like many people, I, I was frankly deeply um, just depressed, worried, trying to figure out the way forward. Um, and I have um, a, a rule of thumb that I, one of my mentors taught me, 
And, and it is, you know, when, when things are, are, are tough and you have difficulty making a decision, particularly, you know, as a health professional, um, I always do what's important for the patient. You know, this is putting my clinical hat on. As a public health practitioner, it, it was real clear to me. One morning I woke up and said, you know, I need to stay focused on the health of the public. And if I do that, you know, everything else will, will fall away. Um, it's going to be a battle, but it always has been. Um, so I would think I would think about the way I am now is fiercely determined with a goal of doing whatever I think is right, no matter who I upset. Georges, I think many people in public health have the same reason as you to feel angry. But something happened in the last few weeks. I mean, were there specific events or that triggered this feeling in you, which is unusual? Well, you know, obviously, we, we just in this last week, we had the, we had the shootings in Florida, um, which is, you know, one of a trio of, 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 of big shootings that we've had recently. Um, and part of a series of, uh, really violent gun uh, deaths that we've had. Um, we've had, uh, attacks on our environmental, um, programs, um, and things that are addressing the health of the public. You know, the environment used to be a bipartisan, uh, activity to protect our health. And now it's become a very partisan, controversial era when it was, you know, it's always been, had some controversy, but not like it is today. Um, the underpinnings of, of many of our reproductive rights, um, which undermine, fundamentally undermine the health of women. Things around, um, cutting, I mean, just dramatic cuts in the programs for health with no real rhyme or reason under the guise of reform. Uh, you know, when you, when you, when you look at it, you have to say, what's going on? Um, the rationale for many of these things make no sense whatsoever uh, in, a, in a, a system in which you really, the goal, of course, is to improve our health, improve our health, our well-being. So, you know, we're all finding ourselves in a, an area in which we have to um, debate. Uh, and it sets us up for this, this feeling about this whole idea of um, do you just settle? You know, how, you know, how, do, you, how do you work with people who you vigorously disagree with, uh, and it's bringing that, I think, to light more and more each and every day. So how do you do that? How do you work with people you deeply disagree with? How do you compromise? Well, you, you, first of all, you recognize that we're a nation of uh, over 300 million people, and, and you, have to, you start with this baseline that we're not all going to agree, uh, even among family members that kind of philosophically have some basis for liking one another. Uh, um, it's, it's difficult to, to, to disagree. Um, so I think the first thing you do is that you recognize that there will be people that have different views that you have. Um, you've got to build a series of respect and trust and, um, and, and not demonize one another. Um, but you, but there's a, there's a line. There is a, there's a hard line there. Uh, and that line, what I call appeasement. Um, you've got, you've got to be really, really clear what your goals and objectives are. And you've got to find common cause with those folks, but you really need to know what your, your, your hard lines are that you're not going to, to, to cross. And if it's going to improve the health and well-being uh, of the community, um, then 
maybe, you know, you can certainly uh, compromise on incremental steps versus big steps. But if you know because of the evidence, because of what you understand from a scientific perspective that it's going to hurt people, then to agree to that's appeasement um, just so you can feel better about it. And that, in my view, is unacceptable. One last question, Georges. Can you share with our readers the last positive thought that came to mind one morning when you woke up? Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think, I think, I think the, the effort from Congress um, to um, um, finally reauthorize the Children's Health Insurance Program um, and to do that for, um, for 10 years, I think, was a positive step. Now, it's part of some other legislation that I didn't like, but that piece of it, I, I thought was very important because it is sure that we're going to have funding for our kids' health insurance. My next conversation is with David Sandwall, who is with the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine in Salt Lake City. He was director of the health staff of the U.S. Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee under Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican from Utah. I'm in Salt Lake City. We've had all, almost uh, no winter, and then two weeks ago we started getting snow, and the skiers are happy, and, and we're finally getting the mountains covered with snow. We're happy here. Wow. I must come and see you. I mean, that's one thing I'm missing from Switzerland is the snow and the mountains. So I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, I mean, you have this long experience, you know, in public health. And, and in this uh, uh, last issue of uh, AGPH, you are proposing these time-proven principles to help promoting uh, public health. One question I have for you is, how different is it for a state like Utah to pr advance public health when the federal government is Republican or when it is Democrat? Well, I tell you, I don't think there's much difference. Um, we're a very red state, as you know. We have a conservative legislature and a governor, but uh, we're also practical. It's an interesting situation. To me, it's another example of how you shouldn't uh, judge things just on the partisan numbers or pol political numbers, uh, because while we're conservative, they're practical enough to appreciate that public health is essential for uh, a good economy, uh, for a healthy workforce. So we're fairly consistent. Um, we're not um, uh, activists, but we're very, very persistent in making our case for public the importance of public health to sustain our local and state health departments. And I think that applies across the political spectrum. Whoever's in charge back there, um, we do weigh in, and we, we, through the health department and myself and others, make clear that uh, they're aware of potential problems if the budget were to be cut too deeply or there'd be changes in uh, some programs. But uh, I don't think it makes a lot of difference uh, who's in the White House. Can you give me an example of a breakthrough that was made in public health under the Obama administration? Well, I think it's uh, clear that the public health 
breakthrough, if you will, came along with the enactment of the ACA. Uh, a lot of people look at the Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act and think of it as an insurance reform or Medicaid expansion, and that's all true. And even in our state of Utah, we've had a dramatic decline in the number of uninsured. Uh, it's, it's improved thanks to the subsidies. And uh, while we did not officially expand Medicaid, uh, we've been able to sustain most of our programs there. But anyhow, I think um, people forget that there were a number of public health funding provisions in there. The block grant uh, was expanded dramatically from $100 million a year to, at least on paper, it would have been $200 billion, or $2 billion a year over the next five years if all that money had stayed intact. But uh, it kept getting uh, kind of pirated away for other things like an increase in the physician reimbursement or the CARES Act at NIH. Nonetheless, funding increased across the board for public health, and there was a focus on community health, the community outreach grants, and and um, a focus on the top killers. Uh, so there were some important and, uh, I think, welcome public health provisions in the ACA. I would give Obama credit for those public health aspects of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, would you have a corresponding example uh, for the Bush administration? Well, <laughs> what comes to mind of the Bush administration is PEPFAR. I don't think the man will ever get credit for what he did worldwide on AIDS. Uh, the PEPFAR, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I know what the acronym stands for, but it's the international funding, dramatic increase, billions of dollars in funding for HIV AIDS uh, prevention and treatment in Africa primarily, but that probably saved millions of lives, and that's a public health success story that needs to be told. Um, he also was a, a proponent of community health centers, and I strengthened the uh, along the notorious border. Instead of putting up a wall, they actually increased the funding for the um, community health centers in those very needy areas, whether it be Harlingen or Brownsville or El Paso. So he was a, a fan of uh, primary care at the community level. Uh, so those are two things that come to mind. And of course, the big one that he'll always get uh, recognized for is Medicare Part D. Uh, it's surprising to most people that Medicare never covered pharmaceuticals until Bush too. But that was a President Bush um, uh, provision that they passed. Let's turn now to New York State single-payer plan proposal. Dick Gottfried, a Democrat, is chair of the New York State Assembly Committee on Health and sponsor of the New York Health Act, a single-payer plan. I asked him where did his idea of a single-payer plan for New York State come from and the chances that it may be implemented in a foreseeable future. So where are you, Dick, right now? I am sitting at my desk in my office in Manhattan. Okay, so you go to Albany from time to time, or? Uh, well, from January through June, I am in Albany three or four days a week. We mm -hmm. are on recess this week. We generally take President's Week off, in part so our 
fiscal committee staffs can uh, work on uh, detail work about the state budget without us in their hair. Uh, and then when we come back next week, they uh, tell us what they've cooked. Because our <laughs> state budget, our state budget is due at the end of March. I see. So I see. So we, we spend early. We spend early February telling our the staff what we want them to do, and then they try to work it out. I understand. And so uh, it, that's as chair of the New York State Assembly Committee. Uh, you've been also as the sponsor of this uh, New York Health Act, which is a, a single payer plan, and some people say it's an improved Medicare for all. What are the chances? Uh, yeah. No? Yeah? Go on. Yeah, yeah. Yes? No, that's exactly right. And uh, so wh where did this idea come from? Well, I've been sponsoring this bill since 1992. Uh, it came to me, it was brought, the idea was brought to me back then by uh, a group of advocacy groups, uh, including the New York State Nurses Association, the Statewide Senior Action Council, the the Citizen Action Organization in New York, uh, and they sat me down and they explained the idea and said, "This is what you really ought to be in favor of." And it was to me, it was a a light bulb moment uh, going off in my brain, and I have been working to make this happen ever since. And so, your plan is a single payer plan is. Only the insurance part, or does it have also a healthcare uh, provider part? Well, it would it would provide for coverage for complete healthcare for all New Yorkers, uh, funded by broad based uh, uh, taxes based on ability to pay. Uh, the delivery of healthcare uh, would not be directly affected, although. I believe with uh, with every New Yorker uh, having full, uh, complete health coverage, I think that would produce a lot of change in the healthcare system because there are a lot of healthcare providers that would suddenly become much more viable uh, than they more viable than they've ever been. I got it. And uh, now it's been 16 years that you've been defending this plan for uh, New York State. What are the chances that uh, this plan gets adopted in the coming years? Well, uh, we've come a long way. In the, in the last three years, it has passed the state assembly, which has a very strong Democratic majority, uh, three years in a row with about a two-to-one margin. I expect we'll do that again uh, this spring. Uh, in the state Senate, uh, it is one co-sponsor short of having a majority of the state Senate as co-sponsors. Uh, now, our state Senate, the politics are a little complicated. It, it is basically dominated by by the Republicans. Uh, a lot of us are very hopeful that 2018 will be a year when we can uh, elect a, a solid working Democratic majority in New York in the Senate. If that happens, I think getting this bill passed in both houses becomes uh, very realistic. Uh, you know, the Governor Cuomo has not taken a position on the issue. He has said he finds the idea 
uh, exciting. And he says he's studying the, you know, the, what the costs and the savings would be, which I think is, uh, is about as strong a position as almost any governor in the country has taken so far. So we may well mm-hmm. be on the verge of doing something very dramatic for 20 million New Yorkers. And tell me, Dick, I mean, if we are so short, wasn't it possible to make some compromise to at least get a, a couple of Republican senators to uh, support the bill? Well, you know, the problem is the kinds of compromises, if you want to call them that, that people sometimes raise uh, could really cripple the idea of, for example, if you tell people who've got the resources that you could buy, you could opt out of the program and buy your own health coverage. Uh, and a lot of people have urged us to allow that. The problem is that what, to me, what guarantees that this will be a good plan is that people with wealth and influence would be part of the plan. And they would make sure that the plan they are in is as good as can be. And as a result, the the 99% of us who are not at that level would benefit from them making sure that the plan is as good as it can be. But the minute you let people with greater wealth buy out of the program, you then undermine a lot of, a lot of the political support that keeps it a top-notch program. Uh, and if the quality begins to slide, then more and more people would opt out until it would get to be a really third-rate program. I see. And uh, there have been attempts to implement uh, or at least to uh, to pass uh, laws with respect to uh, single-payer planning in three states at least, Vermont, yep. Colorado, and California. And and they met yep. uh, some obstacles. What do you think is the reason why there were obstacles there, but there won't be those obstacles in New York State? Yeah. Well, let's take them one at a time. You know, in Vermont, where you where uh, the governor at the time, Peter Shumlin, a uh, terrific guy, very strongly committed to the idea of single payer coverage. Uh, the and and his administration's analysis of the plan uh, was that it would have produced substantial savings for Vermonters. Uh, part of what led him to pull the plug on his own plan was that the the tax plan he proposed would have had a level percentage of tax uh, across the board in Vermont rather than being progressively graduated so that higher brackets paid a higher percentage. And what that meant, just by the laws of arithmetic, was that average Vermonters would have paid a much higher percentage of their income in in the tax for the plan than they would have if there had been a progressively graduated tax. And that just scared him and scared a lot of Vermonters. Um, also, New York has the advantage that we have an enormously uh, uh, rich uh, tax base. Uh, it tends to be concentrated at the upper end of the spectrum. But we have, we have taxable wealth in New York uh, beyond what almost any other state has. Uh, so I don't think we would face Vermont's problem. Colorado's problem was partly that they were trying to do it through a referendum, which meant that when the insurance industry came in in the last couple of weeks of the campaign, spending 
tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on on scary TV ads uh, that had a lot of effect. Um, and there were also problems with the wording of the referendum that uh, were mandated by state law that made it sound very scary. In California, I think what happened was they one house of the legislature passed a bill that did not have a fully fleshed out financing mechanism. And so the other house, the leadership said, hey, this is really not ready for prime time. It's uh, it's not a full package. When it's a full package, we'll we'll take a look at it. So they weren't really saying no to the concept, as I understand it. They were saying this isn't really fully fleshed out. Our bill in New York uh, has a pretty well-defined uh, tax mechanism in the bill. Uh, I think it is the most fully fleshed out proposal of, of any that any state has ever had. So I, I think we are well ahead of, of where California, Colorado and Vermont ended up. Democrats are optimistic about the chances of having a first single-payer plan in New York State. What about Republicans? Pete Kirkham is president of Red Maple Consulting, a federal government relations firm, but he served as executive director of the National Republican Congressional Committee under Chairman Congressman Tom Cole, a Republican from Oklahoma. And he was chief of staff in Cole's congressional office. You, you've been the executive director of the National Republican Congressional Committee. Uh, yes. Do, is this a time of your life you're nostalgic about? Uh, you regret that it's passed or you say, oh, it was so stressful that I'm so happy uh, this is behind now. But What's your so, reaction about it? The answer to that question is yes, which is I, I had a grand time and enjoyed all the people I got to meet on both sides of the aisle, had a lot of fun, good professional development, and, and, and as you know, meeting good people. But I also ran screaming from it and am glad that I'm a lobbyist now and not involved in campaigns anymore. <laughs> Pete, what are the chances that the New York State plan gets adopted in the coming years? It's very possible, I suppose, that it could happen. The, the the Democrats have been short of majority in the state Senate by one or two votes for many years now, I think much to the consternation of the, of the Democratic power brokers in the state because it has prevented them from doing all sorts of things that they that they want to do. Some might argue that they've they're, that they're lucky that they've been saved from themselves because other states that have tried the single-payer route, Vermont, for one, where it's been tried, it's been an absolute disaster. To be fair, I think one of the reasons it's been a disaster is it's hard to implement something like that at the state level. You have to do it either nationally or you, you don't really do it at all. You, some people would argue that a, a bigger state like New York would be easier to do than Vermont, and I suppose that's possible because you have a bigger pool of people. But again, think about New York City. You can move to Connecticut or New Jersey real easy, and a lot of people do. So you almost have to have a whole nationwide system to make it work. State-level efforts, it's really, really hard to do because the odds are stacked against you in so many ways. 
Do you think it would be a good idea if uh, blue states were experimenting with single payer, red states were experimenting with different type of health insurance? I, I think that states experimenting is almost always a good thing. You, you, obviously, things like civil rights and other important areas where you need to have the federal government saying, this is the way it's going to be, period. But in general, when you get into policy issues and programs like this for welfare or for education or for health care, absolutely, let, let the states decide. And, and, and the laboratories for democracies are exactly right. I, I think the, the assemblyman is exactly correct that, that states ought to be able to do what they want. What is your take about uh, what happened with the single-payer plan in Vermont? So the, the legislature and the gov passed the law. The governor signed it into law. Lots of national fanfare. Hey, in Vermont, we're moving to single-payer. And the costs just exploded on them. They weren't able to control the costs. And, and they, so they were never really able to fully implement it. To be, again, to be fair to the folks in Vermont, they were never able to fully implement the program because they, they couldn't get a handle on the costs and the budgets just kept growing and growing and growing. And finally, the legislature just said, we can't do this. We have to stop. So it, it was, it was killed before the program was fully implemented. In the April issue, Professor Kenneth Alden proposes that the EPA has failed to explain, to part of the country at least, why it was still useful to protect the environment now that the gross and thick air pollution of the 60s had been eliminated. For Dick Zimmer, who served as a Republican in Congress for three terms, the problem is elsewhere. Let's listen to him. My first question to you, um, you've been uh, a U.S. Uh, Congress representative for many years uh, in, in the 80s and 90s. You've been dealing with uh, environmental issues. Can you tell us a, a little bit about which issues that uh, you help legislate on? Well, what I worked the hardest on was environmental risk assessment and uh My proposals were incorporated in the Safe Drinking Water Act amendments of 1996. Um, I, I came upon that because I had, as a state legislator, um, worked on radon remediation issues. And um, uh, that's because uh, while I was in the state legislature, it was discovered that there were extraordinarily high levels of, of radon occurring uh within my legislative district and uh as a result um i uh i i got involved with those in those issues and i realized that even though uh radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer and even though having moderately level moderately high levels of radon in one's home is a much more serious risk than um than living next door to a superfund site uh hardly any money federal money was being spent on radon remediation and uh, that got me into the entire issue of environmental risk assessment and comparative risk and um 
and that's why I ended up uh, adding those amendments to the Safe Drinking Water Act. Uh, but the, the reason why I became interested in environmental risk assessment was because I had a friend who at the time was Region 3 Director of the Environmental Protection Agency uh, who brought to my attention a study that had been done by the uh, uh, Bush 41 administration uh, l listing uh, threats to human health and the environment in order of their severity and listing the amount of money that was being expended, expended on them. And there was no relationship between the two lists. Uh, I thought that that was wrong. I thought it was, in, in effect, um, harming the public health and the environment uh, to be so out of sync. And that's why I, took, I became interested in environmental risk assessment. Well, Dick, you are very familiar with the EPA, and uh, you are aware of the concerns that uh, the agency is being dismantled. What is your take about this? Well, I disagree with Dr. Olden's thesis that the agency is going to be dismantled, but I do agree that it could well be paralyzed, uh, and that's because the Trump administration and and directors uh, and, and administrator Scott Pruitt, um, who has been named to head the agency. Uh, are both uh, interested in in um, undermining its mission. And uh, so, how will they paralyze it by by removing some of its regulation, cutting its budget? What, what do you think is going to be the process? Well, um, I don't think the budget will be cut simply because uh, both. Um, Congressional Appropriations Committees have had the opportunity to review the proposed uh, Trump budget cuts, and they rejected virtually all of them. Uh, so I, I don't think that that is a serious problem, as, as Dr. Alden does. Uh, on the other hand, um, I believe that uh, because of the deregulatory bent of uh, Trump and Pruitt, uh, that there's going to be a serious problem uh, maintaining uh, the standards, not just of the Obama administration, but of previous administrations. But so isn't it strange that uh, this uh, agency, which has been created by Nixon, which you as a Republican uh, have been working with and, and respect, all of a sudden gets uh, threatened of, of being paralyzed or um, it, its impact uh, severely reduced. How do you explain the change that uh, has suddenly occurred in, in this new administration? I don't think it's a sudden change. Uh, I think what has happened is that... Um, as the country has become more polarized, uh, regrettably, uh, the EPA has been seen as one of the outposts of the administrative state uh, by, uh, by 
by Trumpites. I don't want to call them Republicans because I'm a Republican, and mm-hmm. I don't want to see the the um, the label. Uh, but um, uh, this, so uh, Trump believes that deregulation is the secret to economic growth. Um, I agree in some regards, but I think that simply uh, disregarding or failing to enforce environmental uh, rules and regulations uh, will not encourage economic growth. I see. And and what about those... uh... I mean, the, the profile that Scott Preed wants to, to give himself as a originalist, you know, he says he wants to go back to the mission of the EPA as it was uh, when it was created in the 70s. That, does this make sense to you? I don't buy it. Um, I think that Scott Pruitt, coming from a state that is dependent on hydrocarbons and, and being very sympathetic to polluters would be opposed to the original EPA. Finally, I have asked all participants the same question. Is there a bipartisan initiative about public health you would wish to see happen in the coming weeks? Here are the answers. Dr. Benjamin? Well, you know, the most important one for me right now is dealing with this episode of um, gun violence that we have in our, in our country. And I'm hoping that Congress will adopt a public health approach uh, to doing so. Um, and that there's a series of things I hope that they will do. But adopting that approach is going to be, for me, very important. Um, and that means making uh, firearms safer. That means making people safer with their firearms. Uh, and that makes make the environment safer for, with firearms and people in it. Uh, and then there's a whole series of things one can do under that that I think is important. Um, but it does not mean, uh, clearly does not mean doing anything that puts more guns in the hands of people who ought not have those guns. And it absolutely doesn't mean Um, you know, militarizing our country. Thank you, Georges. Dr. Sunwell? I think it has to be um, the opioid crisis, as they're struggling to do. Uh, I'm still a practicing physician. I work on our state health department clinic twice a week, and I volunteer at a community clinic, which is intended to serve primarily our undocumented immigrants in our state. We don't advertise it as a clinic for illegal immigrants, but we make sure they know they're welcome there. Um, but anyhow, the opioid crisis is that. It's a big problem in our state and elsewhere. So that's where they should devote their attention right now. I'm not sure when you say bipartisan, it seems like they are both agree to throw money at it. But I think it's going to be a long process to kind of root this uh, cultural problem out of our society. It's a, really a tragedy what's happened. To State Assembly Member Gottfried and Pete Kierkham, I've asked the question specifically in terms of health insurance. Dick Gottfried? You know, there are, there are things that could make the current system a little better. Uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act did a, a lot of improvements. Uh, 
Uh, there are things that the Trump administration is trying to do that would make it worse. You know, the problem is, as as long as you're tinkering with the current system rooted in insurance companies, uh, there are there are real limits to how much you can achieve. Uh, I don't think you can make a big difference uh, for patients and for healthcare providers as long as you are rooted in the insurance-based system. Thank you very much, Dick. And now, Pete Kierkegaard. The one that I think they really could do deals with the high-risk pool. So, so I think almost everybody agrees that folks that, that, are, that have disabilities or have rare diseases or have long-term care issues, think of, think of children that may have a particular disease that's going to last for the rest of their life or they're mentally mentally handicapped or, or folks that need a, 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 it just costs an awful lot of money to provide care for them over an extended period of time. Finding some way to get a risk pool put in place across the country so that everybody has access to a more affordable health care insurance plan is something that is very doable, I think, and that, that both parties can come together on. It, it, that's not to say it's easy. If, if there are easy solutions to these problems, we'd have found them a long time ago. They're all very hard, even where you have people of goodwill working together. But, but I think that's the one area I would pick is high-risk pool. Thank you, Pete. And now I've asked the question to Dick Zimmer specifically about the EPA. Well, the only bipartisan initiative I think that's realistic is keeping the funding levels relatively high and disregarding the Trump administration's uh, proposed budgets, uh, that uh, is being done. Uh, but uh, I don't think that the leadership of either house is interested in any further, um, either f and any further uh, initiatives that would be bipartisan. But so if, if we keep the funding we, can the activity occur? I, I'm, I'm just... No, it, it, no, it won't necessarily occur because, um, because Scott Pruitt doesn't want it to occur. Mm -hmm. So, so it would be kind of keeping the funding until the times get better for the EPA. Yes, I guess that's it, but um, that's pretty sad. Okay. Thank you, Dick, and thanks again to all of you, my interviewees, for this podcast. Thank you for your time, for your willingness to be part of the dialogue, and for your answers, which uh, reflect a genuine interest for public health. That's it. Thank you for listening. The music is, as usual, prepared by Francis Jacob. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to the podcast app on your phone or tablet. Mm -hmm.